Thank you, praise team. What a great thought. Fault, faultless before the throne. If you have a Bible this morning, I would like to invite you to turn to the New Testament book of James, which is where we began last week together. It's a bit into the New Testament, almost towards the end of the scriptures. James chapter 1. Well, I understand that this evening um, is the kickoff officially of the NFL season, or at least the Colts play tonight. So we should have you done in time for the, the, the pregame program yeah. about 8 o'clock. Is that okay with you all? <laughs> anyway, big night, and um, <clears throat> many of you are ramping up for that in all manner of ways, so that's kind of a fun time. Some of you are playing fantasy football. I want you to know that um, any type of playing of football for me is always a fantasy, okay? I was a cello player. Um, I think I played one season in the eighth grade and got my lights put out and thought, better stick to playing the cello. At, um, but it's a great season, and I have lots of admiration um, for <clears throat> individuals in the sports world who have genuinely made their marks on all of us in the world for the better. It, it does seem a rare thing these days, doesn't it, in kind of the wild and anything goes, do everything for yourself world of professional sports and competition where anyone genuinely stands out as the real item, but there are exceptions, and um, I had reason to be reading this past week about one of those individuals, the legendary coach, John Wooden, who, by the way, I did not know this, of course, but um, it was great fun to realize that John Wooden was a Hoosier. He was born in Indiana, actually graduated from Purdue University, and later finished his graduate degree right here in Terre Haute from Indiana State University. How many of you knew that out there of John Wooden? Wow. So not too many cello players out there, I take it. But anyway, I thought that was great. And um, not only that, but he coached the uh, Indiana State University Sycamores um, early on in his coaching career. And this was a remarkable sports figure. Obviously, as head coach of uh, UCLA, he won 10 NCAA national championships in a 12-year period. That's a big number. Seven in a row. Um, 88 consecutive winning games. Now, that's a big number. 88. And he was named National Coach of the Year six times. In this particular interview that I was reading of him, he was asked what is the most important thing or what was the most important thing for him as such a winning um, and internationally known uh, basketball coach. You would be surprised perhaps to know that it was not the record, although it was important. Uh, it was not the, um, <clears throat> the titles, although those were helpful. To John Wooden, in his own words, he said the most important thing about what he did as a coach was building character in his players. That's what made all the difference in the world for this legendary man. And then he was quoted as saying, and this is the quote that was so striking to me, competition doesn't form character, 
it reveals it. I like that. James, in his letter to you and to me, to the church around the world, would say, trials don't create faith. They reveal it. One of the first issues that James hits head on and presents to these believers in this powerful and penetrating letter as we saw next time is their attitude and their mindset in regard to their trials. Now I want to say at the very beginning of our time together this morning that I tread on very sacred ground here for a couple of reasons. First, There are brothers and sisters of all of ours in Christ who this very moment are suffering the most mind-bogglingly severe trials in northern Iraq at the vicious and brutal hands of ISIS terrorists bent on promoting their radical culture of hatred and evil as far as they will be allowed to go all in the name of God. This very moment, And I must say, before we talk about enduring trials, that I have never known such fearful circumstances or perilous plights as these brothers and sisters in Christ today face in Iraq and in other places around the world. So I fear my words already will ring somewhat presumptuously and even skin deep compared to the depth of their despair and the absolute triumph of their resilient faith in the face of such impossible trials. But second, I I know there are people right here in this room who are in the middle of the most difficult trial of their lives too. Some who have lost their job, have received ominous diagnoses, face terminal conditions, or under the weight of a pending loss of relationships, or um, a, a family experience, and many others also, none of which I have personally really known anything of, and to speak at any level today of experience, let alone authority on this topic, you need to know makes me extremely uneasy and more deeply aware of my personal unworthiness worthiness in the presence of any of you who are trusting and holding on to the bright light of faith as you walk every day through your tunnel of uncertainty. Nonetheless, this gracious apostle, this man James, by inspiration of God's Spirit, has spoken a word to the church, to you and to me, that is timeless and penetrating and that we must all hear and obey. And it has to do with the very fabric of our faith, what we believe, my faith, your faith, and the character of what means so much to God. And in fact, it is the very source of pleasure for him personally. The Bible says that without faith, you cannot please God. You cannot please God with activity. You cannot please God with just a total expending of all of your energy and resources. The only way you can bring pleasure and delight and pure joy to this gracious, compassionate, good God is through your faith. It's so important. It's it's, it's why it's very, uh, very first on James's list. 
Without faith, we can never please God. But James knows, of course, how fickle the human mind and spirit are, that when life draws down on us, we can easily think wrongly, even irrationally about what we are experiencing. And we are what we think, at least what we think, influences the quality and vitality of how we live. So we must look at it. And, and let it come to us like that long needle I talked of last Sunday and let it go deep and te- test the oxygen levels of our faith. This is what James says. Listen, beginning at the, be, uh, the first verse of James, we'll just go back and then read through verse 4 today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. How relevant is that today as these blessed Brothers and sisters in Christ across the planet are trusting God. They're remaining firm in their faith against all of these odds scattered among the nations. Listen, here's what James says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Listen, first, God wants you to think rightly about your trials, about what you are experiencing. He says, consider. Consider it pure joy. Consider is a a thinking word. God cares deeply about your thoughts. He cares deeply about your perspective and your attitudes towards these things in your life, your thought life and your perspective on matters related to hard times. Paul writes later to the believers at Rome at the end of that letter that is called Romans. He says, do not be conformed to this world. That is to say, in the way the world thinks about these things, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, that's what's of primary importance to God, is your mind, your thoughts, how you think. James says, think this way. Consider it pure joy whenever you face these trials. Pure joy. Now this idea of pure joy, it has to do with the, the genuine item, what is real, what has stood the test of time and of the press. There is no dross. It's a, it's a word that is used of the quality of a precious metal like gold. It is pure. It is the real item. Now we've got this little debate going on in our family <clears throat> on Saturday mornings about the virtues of syrup versus pure maple syrup. Now you know how deep we are at the Toby house on Saturdays. You see, you've got this syrup that is usually in a large container. It's pretty inexpensive. You can get it just about any <coughs> grocery outlet out there on the planet, and it, it goes a long way. And it's sweetened, and it's thick, and it, it tastes pretty good. But then on the other side, you see, you've got pure maple syrup. I get a witness out there, anybody? Right, okay. Some of you Cracker Barrel fans out there, right? You know what this is about. This goes through the process. This comes directly from the source, you see. And it's, 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 it's gone through a, a purifying uh, procedure that when it, by the time it gets to, to my plate and on a fork and makes its way to the palate of my mouth, it's pure joy. 
work in this a bit, I know. But listen, that's, that's how God sees your faith. There's really only two options in the face of a trial. It, it's the imitation response. <laughs> it's not the real deal. It's just, yeah, yeah, I've got this. Or it's this pure experience of this is, this is God's work. And it's that response that pleases him. Think that way, God says, about what you're facing. That was a classic example in, in the Gospels, long before James, that kind of describes this level of wrong thinking in contrast to what James is promoting here. If you'll hold your finger in James 1 and go over to the New Testament Gospel of John, it's to the left quite a ways in your New Testament, if you have a copy of the scriptures. Um, John chapter 9. John chapter 9, the very beginning of this <clears throat> chapter, as John um, is chronicling the, the early ministry of Jesus and many of these miracles that highlighted and, and, and put a stamp of God's um, approval and validity on, on the ministry of Jesus. And these are the words of John. John chapter 9 verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth. Now again, I'm uneasy because I've never known anything like this. I, I, I have a hard time seeing. That's why I have these, these really bad glasses so that I can read what's on But I've never been blind. And I've certainly never experienced the, the enormous burden and, 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 and pain of being blind, having never seen anything ever, in comparison to the people all around me who describe what they're seeing, and, and it's part of their language, and it's, it's part of the rhythm of culture, everything that is seen. But this, this person that Jesus saw had been blind since birth. And his disciples, verse 2, asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? <laughs> now, that's their perspective. That, that's how they're viewing this, this great trial, this, this experience of this person who has been blind from birth. They're, they're thinking in their minds, this has got to be somebody's fault. It's because of either what he did or what his parents did. And so they ventured this question. It's, 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 it's paper thin, deep. Who, who sinned? <laughs> Jesus' response is in sharp contrast to that way of thinking. And it, it connects with what James is saying. Jesus says, neither. It, it wasn't this man nor his parents said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. There it is. That's the perspective. That's considering, thinking rightly about what you're experiencing in this trial. It has little to do with anything you've done or someone else has done, but it has everything to do with the work of God in your life. What a contrasting perspective. 
This is God's work. He wants to put himself on display through your life. And he wants to do it by strengthening and developing your faith in the face of this trial. It's God at work. What a completely opposite but marvelous perspective. Now there's another story that has to do with a a fundamental misunderstanding of just the nature of suffering. That somehow it's always the wrong and undesirable path for any of us to take. So um, keeping again your finger in James, let's move over to Matthew uh, chapter 16. Uh, Again, a little further to the left, Matthew chapter 16. I hope you're making your way in in the Bible this morning. I appreciate hearing the pages turn and flip out there. That's wonderful. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. This is later on in Jesus' ministry. um, And he's (coughs) speaking more pointedly and more directly now to the disciples. Um, In verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's way up in the north, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. (laughs) See the difference? This was not a human thought, Peter. This this did not originate with you. This, This was a supernatural thought that came into your mind because God put it there. This came from the Lord. That's the right way to think about these experiences and these questions that are ventured our ways about, you know, why is there evil in the world and how could a loving God allow such things? Well, listen, we don't want to rely on our own understanding here, but rather that we think rightly. These thoughts come from the Lord. That's what Jesus affirmed in Peter. But listen, fast forward the tape just a couple of moments, perhaps, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. That's the same expression that James uses in the beginning of his letter. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face many things, trials. Jesus started to tell them, listen, it, it's, it's time to go into a period of suffering and I will experience many things. At the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Now watch this. Peter, this is the same Peter that we just heard from, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. Is that your perspective on trials, by the way? Never. This is never going to happen to my kids. I'm not going to allow it. It's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to our family. I, I'm just, it's never, never suffering. Never. And I will do everything. I will exhaust all of my resources to, to put such a frame around our world and our experience to just ensure that this never happens. See, that was Peter's perspective. Never, Lord. Never will you suffer. Never will you uh, have pain inflicted upon you. Never will you die. Never. Never. That's, That's the way Peter was thinking. 
Now watch this response. Again, in sharp contrast, but perfectly aligned with what James is trying to say. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, devil. (laughs) You are a stumbling block to me with that kind of thinking. You do not have in what? Mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. You see, that that perspective on on, on suffering, on trials, on these things that are brought into our lives and that we face, if we shun them, if we do everything in our power to somehow not experience or make sure that it never happens to us, that is not only a shallow response to God's work. You need to know on the authority of Scripture, it's satanic. not of God. He wants you to think rightly about what you're experiencing, and it's, it's a work. It's His work. This is God revealing Himself to you and considering you worthy in order that His glory, His name might be made known through your life, through your faith, bringing about His gracious will in your lives, in the lives of your family. Consider it pure joy, the real deal when you face trials, because it's of God. And there is a genuineness of joy that not only wells up in me, but also comes to the heart of God, knowing He would consider us worthy of a deeper faith worthy of such testing. Now there's a second thing that James tells us back to James chapter 1 if you want to turn back there and that is that God desires for us to mature completely. Not just think rightly but mature completely in our experience of faith. Look what he says. He says in verse 3, you, you know this. You know that the testing of your faith develops, puts on display John Wooden would say, reveals character. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The vision of Christ for your life, for your faith, is that you mature completely in your experience of faith. He wants us to think based on what we know to be true and mainly that testing, trials, hard times, uncertainty, persecution, feelings of loneliness and fear, all of these seemingly burdensome times are actually God's tool to forge a deepened and reliable faith. That's perseverance. The word has to do with the genuineness and depth of who we are. It must finish its work. This is always God's way that the work be finished, it be completed, that it might be relied upon. It is solid. It's like a handshake, it's gold. 
No questions asked. It's, it's a done deal. It's, it's, it's unshakable reliability every time. That's perseverance. And it's worth the press. It's worth the test in order to gain that kind of faith. In fact, James declares we ought to actually think this way, express genuine, pure joy because it's evidence that God is actually in our lives and cares deeply about us and the character of our faith. Now, there's another gospel story that I think highlights this um, quite dramatically. So again, hold your uh, thumb or whatever in in James 1 and turn to Luke chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 7. In the New Testament, just to the left, Luke chapter 7. This is Luke now kind of chronicling um, similar highlights of Jesus' early ministry. Now he's in Galilee, um, verse 1 of chapter 7. Luke says, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That's on the lake. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. That's a trial. He was terminally ill. He was so ill. And this centurion, who was an employee of Caesar, he was a Gentile, he was not Jewish, he was Roman, had a servant who he loved and valued, and he was very ill and sick at the time in Capernaum. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to um, Jesus, they pleaded, the Jews, earnestly with him, this man, talking about the centurion, deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. So they they pulled out the the, the politics card. You need to do this for him because he loves loves Israel. A lot of that going on over there right now, by the way. They pulled the, the, the politics card. And then they said, um, not only does he love our nation, but he has built our synagogue. So now they played the, the benefactor card. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's got deep pockets. So he deserves this, Jesus, from you, because he's, he's on the top of our uh, donor list. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion, that's the Roman, the Gentile, sent friends to say to him, now listen, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Look how different this message is from what the Jews brought to Jesus. I do not deserve to have you come to my house, come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider. That's a thought word. He's thinking differently. I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But you, say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Isn't that remarkable? Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. (laughs) And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, 
I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Jesus was amazed because he had never witnessed such great faith. He didn't say, I've never seen such faith. He said, I've never seen such great faith, mature faith, faith that had actually gone through the press and come out with this kind of thinking, this kind of response to a trial. You do this, God, because I am under your authority, just like the people who work for me are under my authority. Now, that's right thinking. That's a faith that had been blazoned. That had, the, the, the dross had been removed somewhere in that process, and it blew Jesus away. It blew him away. It amazed him. And this is so wonderful. God says, you cannot please me. You cannot amaze me without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to amaze God. You can't do it. Wow, how about that? You see, this, this, is, this is the real item. It, maturity in Christ is a worthy and most expected end result. And, and God wants us to consider the pure joy when we're up against the rails, when we're under the pile, when, when we just can't seem to find a way out, when, the, when there's, there, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, when, when, when it's an ominous future because it's his gracious plan to make us, to finish the work. About this time last year, my cell phone rang, and it was a friend of mine from Texas. He was a, kind of a busy guy and an author. He said, hey, Mark, what are you doing for the holidays? Like between now and the end of Christmas. This was about the 1st of November. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Working, living, you know, holidays. He said, well, I'm up against the wall. I got a book deadline, and I, I'm not even close. Can you help me? We got to pull this thing out of the fire. Okay, let's do it. Kind of rolled up our sleeves, came up with a little plan, and off we went to work. And he'd been mer working his way, teaching through the book of Exodus. <laughs> and this message the Lord just gave him for about manna, God's provision in times of suffering. So we're just back and forth, you know, day and night, and working through this thing, trying to get this thing, and working through the manuscript, and looking at the scriptures, and the illustrations, and trying to get it right, back and forth, and trying to hit this deadline of January 1, right straight through the holidays, and right smack in the middle of this time together.